Hey there, my name is Roy and I'm the lead pastor here at Arthur Pentecostal Assembly and we're glad you've joined us for our online experience. You've just watched the video by Lecrae, the I Am Second video. My question this morning is, what is your story? For some of us, we don't have the dramatic story that like Lecrae has. We didn't come from a life where we were saved from drugs and gangs and, and just recklessness. Uh, we didn't have the near-death experience that, that woke us up just all of a sudden where we, had to, we felt we had to change our lives. For some of us, instead of all of a sudden the picture becoming clear, we had our, our, our wake-up moment. It was more of a, the vision became less and less blurry and all of a sudden we were able to clearly see. Maybe that's your story. Perhaps, though, we would, if we looked at your life uh, way back to compare to what it is now, we wouldn't even recognize you now. Perhaps you had that moment that changed you. A moment where you felt like God got your attention. You actually felt like if I don't make a change right now, I might be in trouble. It's like that moment where you step out of the darkness into light. It's when you, when you go from this dark, have you ever been in that spot where you're in this dark, dark room and all of a sudden you walk out into the daylight and your eyes are just like, they hurt, it hurts and you either have two choices. You either retreat back into the dark or you face the light where you are to be able to see the beauty of what's around you. Lecrae knew that his future would either lead to prison or death if he continued to, to stay in the dark, continued to go down the path that he was on. And when he nearly lost his life in a car accident, he chose to step out of the dark that was full of nothing good into the light chasing after God. Now maybe you're in one of those situations, these situations where you need to step out into the light when it comes to your finances. You've spent more than you make and you, your, your spending is, has been kind of reckless. And you got, you're at a point right now that you know that if I don't make a change soon, well, bankruptcy is probably on the horizon. Or perhaps it's in your marriage. You, 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 things are a little shaky right now, and there's been some bad habits on both sides, and you're at this tipping spot. You know that if something doesn't change right now, well, it may get to the spot where we can't save it. Or maybe as a student, you've been there with your grades. It's pretty early on right now, and hopefully you're not there already. But you've, you've blown off assignments. You haven't done your homework. You, you didn't study for tests, and, you, and there's this risk of failing. You get to a spot where you're like, if I don't change something right now, I'm not going to pass this class. It's in that moment where you realize, I either retreat to the dark doing things the same way that I've been continuing to do, the same way things have got me into this spot, or I can temporarily deal with the pain that the light brings to my eyes, do the right thing, and then ultimately see the beauty in front of me. Well, in John chapter 3, we meet a guy, a guy that has this moment, this moment where he steps out of the dark and has to face the light. He goes face to face with his own light, in fact, the light, and he has to make a choice. Will I embrace this defining moment and allow it to make me who I was meant to be? Or do I do what many people do and retreat to the dark and do what I've done before? In John chapter 3, we meet Nicodemus. Now, if you grew up in church, you're probably quite familiar with the story of Nicodemus. If you've ever been to a Sunday school class, if you've ever been to a VBS, Vacation Bible School, if you've ever been to any of those things, the story of Nicodemus is kind of one of those staple stories. But we're going to look at this story in depth as we continue our series, Lost in Translation. And in this series, we are looking at some of the phrases or concepts that 
If you're a Christian, you understand what these words mean or these concepts mean, but to the average person who has no church background, well, when they hear these words or these phrases, they're kind of puzzled by them. Today, we're going to be looking at the phrase, born again or being saved. You've probably heard both. You even heard it in the video by Lecrae. Someone told him he needed to get saved. He had no clue. Like, what are you talking about? Again, if you have no context for these terms, it can kind of feel like when someone says that you need to be saved, it kind of feels a little bit mean or like you're being talked down to. Like, saved? Saved from what? What, 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 do I need, what do you think I need to be saved from? And yet Jesus used these words, and they had so much significance. So what does it mean when someone's, someone is saved? Or how do you know if you are saved? Or how can you today, if you've never made a decision to step toward the light of God, become saved? How can you do that? We're going to start by looking in John chapter 3, verse 1. And it says this, There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. So Nicodemus, Nicodemus believes he has it all. He's a Jewish man in a Jewish system. And he he seems to have everything. Pharisees at the time were were exalted by other people around them. And so he's well respected. Now, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, the Jews in the first century, they didn't really control their own land. Rome was the superpower of the day. In fact, Rome was so powerful, their armies were so big that they conquered land and they owned land all the way from what we would call today England all the way to modern day India. And so it was a massive piece of land. And they had conquered it and they ruled over it with their their military might. But it was a massive, massive piece of land to have to control. So at a time when there was no planes, trains, or automobiles, no internet, no email, keeping everything in order was done by splitting the land into separate territories and then putting people in charge of those areas who would ultimately report back to Rome. And so in this territory of Israel... There is a large, large, huge population of Jewish people. And Rome allows them to function within their religious systems and allows them to maintain their culture under the careful watch of Roman, the Roman officials. And the reason they do that is because they realize that if this group of, this group of, of Jewish people, they rise up together, they can try to overthrow uh, the, the local government around there and it, it would be a headache, it would be a bit of a nightmare. And uh, so they they figure it's going to cause us less problems, less headaches if we allow them to kind of just exist within their culture. Now, there was never a concern that the Jews would overthrow the whole Roman government. That's that's the the Roman government was just way too big. Their their army was just way too big. It was a ridiculous thought. But it was in Rome's best interest to keep peace with the Jews. And so they would hire Jews that were liaisons, the go-betweens between the Jewish people and the Romans. And they would pay them crazy amounts of money to do this. And Nicodemus was one of these liaisons. His job was to keep Rome happy and and make sure that the Jews were falling in line with what their demands were. But he also had to report back to the Jews and and report what Rome wanted. And and, and any concerns, he would transfer them back, back and make sure everybody was happy. And he's paid really well in order to do so. So... He's a wealthy, wealthy Jewish man, and he doesn't feel like, like, he's not like a tax collector where he feels like he's sold out to his own Jewish culture. He's able to maintain his Jewish culture. He's, he's quite wealthy, and he's liked by pretty much everyone. 
And so he's got this great setup as good as any Jewish person could want under the circumstances. So verse 2 says, After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, now let's stop right there for a moment. This is very significant because Nicodemus, like we said, is living the dream. He has everything he wants, and he comes before Jesus, who he's definitely heard a lot about, and he calls him Rabbi. This is a sign of respect, a sign of humility. And the Pharisees, they weren't exactly known for their humility at times. In our culture, there seems to be a correlation between how much money someone has and their perceived need for God. Because often we recognize when we are in need, we recognize when we're kind of down and out, we recognize our need for God. But money can mask many things. Money can let you believe that everything is okay, like you are in control. And as we know, there are plenty of wealthy people who are miserable. Plenty of wealthy people that end up taking their own lives because they realize money doesn't mask everything. But a lot of times when you have money, you, realize, you, you, you come to this conclusion that maybe I don't need God. So Nicodemus is in this situation, despite his lavish situation, he humbles himself. And he seeks after, seeks after God. And he comes to Jesus as rabbi. We all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. See, so he's kind of feeling Jesus out right now. He isn't quite convinced that Jesus is God, but he does acknowledge, I've seen some things, I've heard some things, enough to know that God is with you. And I think he articulates the way that many of us feel when it comes to God. He basically says to Jesus, I know about you, I know of you, I'm impressed, but I'm not fully wholeheartedly following you. Or I'm not all in and being devoted to you because I don't fully trust you. See, he's like, I've heard your stories and I'm quite impressed, but I don't really know you that well. And then Jesus in the next verse seems like he actually interrupts Nicodemus' thought with a different thought train. Now, if you've read enough of Jesus' interactions, you see time and time again that Jesus doesn't always answer the question that's spoken to him. But he answers the thought or what's implied. When you're praying to God, realize this, that when what comes from your lips is less important than what's actually going through your head because God reads your, God reads your heart, he reads your thoughts. Verse 3 says this, this is what Jesus replies. I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So again, Nicodemus is building Jesus up. I've heard about the whole walk on water thing. I, I know some people who were at that wedding where you turned water into wine. Truly impressive, Jesus. And then Jesus jumps in and says, truth is, Nicodemus, you can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And that, there's where it is, that, that strange phrasing, born again. He says, you know what it means to be born but if you're going to truly step out of the dark into the light, this is your moment, Nicodemus. This is the tipping point in your life. If you want to truly realize the purpose that God has for you, if you want to get a glimpse of God's glory, you need to be born again. And Nicodemus is perplexed. If, if not a bit amused, in fact, I actually imagine that he chuckles at the imagery of this as he says to Jesus in verse 4, what do you mean? How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? And then Jesus interrupts him again and says, I assure you, 
No one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. See, the first time he says no one can see the kingdom of God without being born again. Now he says no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and Spirit. So this is a big deal. It's a big deal because Nicodemus believed that what many of us have believed at one point, and many people continue to believe today. He believes that if I do enough good, that if I attain enough favor with God, then I can receive the gifts God has and ultimately earn my entrance into heaven. Maybe you've moved past that position. Maybe you've come to a place where you understand that in order for you to enter the kingdom of God, there has to be this tipping point moment between you and God. Maybe that's you. But for even for those that have accepted this, we still live our lives like grace isn't quite enough. That if we're kind enough to others, if we do enough good deeds, if we show respect to people, well, that'll put us in God's good books. But then Jesus comes along and he says, you don't get it. You can never do enough good. The kingdom of heaven is actually going to surprise you at who's there and who's not. Because it's not based on volunteer hours or it's not based on what you accomplish. There will be many nice people that spend eternity removed from God's presence. And it's because they reject what Jesus is teaching. And maybe you're thinking, Roy, that's what, that's what Jesus teaches. But that seems pretty narrow, like kind of unaccepting. But then Jesus would later teach in the book of John, he'd say, but the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult. Only a few will ever find it. But the path that Jesus is talking about is very accepting. It's not discriminative of, at all. Because he says, I, this path that I'm talking about, that if you will journey with me, is open to every person who wants to walk it with me. Every person. Verse 5 says this, Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. We see this on a basic understanding. I think we all understand what it means. We, you understand that you were born. There, there had to be this moment where you came into the world. There was this moment where you left the darkness of your mother's womb into the light, the harsh, harsh light of the world. And Jesus is saying here, in the same way, in order to see the kingdom of God, to see heaven, you need to step out of the dark and have this defining moment with God where you discover the light. You discover that you were made on purpose for purpose and that you are nothing without God. So the only way to be standing in good standing with God is not to accomplish something, but to be reborn or born again. Verse 7, so don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind, but can't tell where it came, comes from or where it is going. So you can't explain how, to explain how people are born of the Spirit. Verse 9, how are these things possible? Nicodemus asks. Again, he's, he's pretty perplexed at what Jesus, this is not something he's ever heard in his life before. Jesus replied, you're a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things? I assure you, we tell you what we know and have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. And then in verse 14, he says this. Jesus reaches back into the Old Testament. And at this point, again, Nicodemus' head is kind of spinning. Imagine you've never been exposed to church, and today was your first 
First day, someone gets up in front and says something like this. You came into the world by a physical birth, but you need to be born again. You would be like, how does this make any sense? And so Nicodemus, like I said, his head spinning. And then, re then Jesus reaches back to Moses and says in verse 14, it's, And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who, see, who believes in him will have eternal life. Now, this story that he's referencing is one that Nicodemus would fully understand. In the book of Exodus, their ancestors, the Jewish people, were enslaved to the, the Egyptians under Pharaoh. And they were treated poorly. They were abused. They were murdered. They were all working around the clock in the hot sun. And God sends Moses to rescue them. And we've dug into this story quite a bit in the last number of weeks. But through a series of miracles and God's protecting, the Israelites are free and their every need is taken care of as he leads them towards the promised land. But like much of the Israelite history, every time things get comfortable, and let's be honest, that's our story too. Every time we get comfortable, we feel like we don't need God anymore. And that's what happened with the Israelites. They felt like they had accomplished everything. They didn't need God despite what he'd done in the past. And so they wander without God's leading. In the book of Numbers, it says they end up in a land full of snakes, venomous snakes. Now, I can't think of anything more terrifying. And in fact, literally, I hate snakes. Like, I really hate snakes. So being in this land full of venomous snakes all around, these, these snakes begin to bite the Israelites and people are dying from the venom. And they come to Moses for help to plead with God to save them. And Moses prays to God and here's what God says to do. I want you to make a snake out of bronze or something and put it on a pole. Then when anyone is bitten, they can look at it and they will not die, but they will continue to live. If they turn their eyes to this pole, the venom that once would have been devastated will now have no longer have an effect on them. And so that's what the people do. And as God promised, when they were bitten, they turned their eyes towards this pole and they were saved. And Nicodemus is listening intently because he can't get his mind around it. He's like, I get the story of Moses, but how does this fit with your whole born again thing? I don't see how the two relate. And Jesus has already told them that your good deeds and good intentions aren't enough for God's favor. He tells them, you need to be born again, which, again, wow. And now he reaches back to this story that's very familiar with Nicodemus and says, do you remember what happened with the Israelites? Do you remember when the Israelites distanced themselves from God and how, how, sep how separated they were from God and something was killing them in the midst of that, something poisonous? And God told them to turn their eyes to the pole where the snake was and be saved? You don't understand this right now, Nicodemus, but this is foreshadowing something even bigger. Because while you continue to live for yourself, while you continue to, to walk in darkness, there is something that is killing you. And if you will turn towards God, if you will choose to put your trust in him, if you will choose to be born again. Again, verse 14 says, And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole, in the wilderness, so the Son of God must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. In times, Nicodemus, you will feel separated from God. 
But if you'll turn to the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice on a pole that's going to be lifted up before men, you will be saved. And then John, one of Jesus' closest disciples, gives us the next verse, perhaps the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. He says, John, John, like he, he watched all of this happen. He lived with Jesus. He watched it happen. And he, he puts it into these, world, these words that, that God so loved the world. In fact, he could have said, well, they don't want me or they don't feel like they need me. Or, so I should just let them do their thing. But no, he so loved the world that he gave his only son. And then verse 17, which I think should be just as famous. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. I love this verse. Let me sidetrack for just a moment. If your experience with church or church people has been judgment or condemnation, please don't lump Jesus in with your experience. That's never what he meant to be. See, the reason God sent his son wasn't to come at you. It wasn't to condemn you. It wasn't to add another layer to your, your shame or your guilt. God didn't send his son to condemn you or to condemn me, but to save the world through him. God says we're all going to face our Nicodemus moment where we have to decide, will I step into the light and, and God's purpose for my life, or do I retreat to what I know, what is easier, the wider path? Nicodemus has so many questions, and he doesn't even have the, the, all the words to express what he wants to say, but he's curious, and he has questions, and I love that he has the humility to seek. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, in the same way that the Israelites had to look towards a pole in the desert to be saved, to live on, again, I know you don't understand this right now, but you will. You will have a defining moment with God where you will put your trust in him. And you will, you will look to a pole, a pole that is attached to a perfect sacrifice. But if you look toward it and place your trust there, that once, once what was set out to destroy and kill you in sin will be powerless to do so. And as a result, you will not die but have everlasting life. So here's the question for you. Have you ever made this decision to be saved? What does that mean? Well, it means that you're saved from an eternity separated from God. It means you're saved from a life that is less than what God imagined for you. It means that you're saved from sometimes your own destructive habits. Have you ever been saved? Have you ever been born again? Well, as you look through the New Testament, it's spelled out for how to become saved or born again. And it's so easy. You see, Jesus came and paid the price for all humanity on the cross. The consequence for sin is death. And Jesus paid that for you. He was thinking of you. And all you have to do is look towards the cross. But in doing so, there are three simple things it requires from us. The first thing is this, and this is a Christian word, but it's repent. Repent means, well, it doesn't mean I just say I'm sorry. Because I think even as kids, we did this all the time. We'd say sorry just to get out of the situation. Like, can I go now if I say I'm sorry? No, it means that, repent means that you do a full 180 away from the behavior, away from the situation, that you're broken 
by your own behavior. Repent is to choose to turn away from the sin and walk in a different path. The second thing is this. First is repent. Second is confess. Where I speak out that I have sinned. Where I, God, I messed this up. I confess. The third part, and this is probably the most important part, is to simply believe. It's not enough to believe that there, there may be a God or, or to intellectually believe that there was a Jesus that walked this earth because there's, there's plenty of historical data to prove this. But it's to put the full weight of your trust in him as your savior, the one and only person who can save you. In the same way that Moses lifted up a pole and asked the Israelites to turn their eyes towards it and trust that they would be saved, have you made a decision to do the same thing when it comes to the cross? To no longer look at Jesus the way Nicodemus did. Jesus, we've heard about you. Jesus, we're impressed by you. But I don't follow you because I haven't quite put my trust in you. Have you chosen to receive him as your Savior? I mean, you've heard Christians or pastors say these words before. You need to be saved. or You need to be born again. And it, it might be just easy to move on after you've heard these. These words can get lost in translation. I mean, they may feel insignificant, but can I tell you today that there's nothing more significant that you can do than to turn towards the cross, away from your old life, away from the darkness, repent, confess, and believe in Jesus as your Savior. Let's pray. God, I thank you that, first of all, that you sent your Son, that you love the world so much the 2,000 years into the future, you saw me and you saw each person that's listening to my voice today. And you sent your son, Jesus, to die on the cross so that we wouldn't have to carry with us our, the, the heaviness of our shame and our burden and our sin. And so, God, I pray for those that have never made the decision to put their trust in you. Maybe they've heard of you. Maybe they've heard of you. Maybe they're even impressed with some of your teachings. But God, today, I pray that this would be their, their crossroads. I pray this would be the day that they step out of the darkness into the light, fully embrace the future you have for them, fully put their trust in you that they would have eternal life and would not be struck away from your presence, but they'd be able to spend eternity with you. And so God, I pray that uh, for those that make that decision today, they would reach out, they'd find somebody that, uh, that is a follower of yours, reach out and allow them to journey with them on this incredible, significant decision that they've made today. And so, God, I pray that you would just continue to walk with them and guide them. And I ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.